I'd invite you to take a Bible, please, and open to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and it's page 718 in our church Bibles. And in just a second or two, we're going to read from verse 13. And I was thinking that if we hadn't, haven't had a chance to meet yet, I would love to meet you. So just think about that as we move along. All right. Verse 13, chapter 12, Mark's Gospel. Later they, that would be the religious leaders, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew the hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Amen. Let's pray together, please. Father, will you please help us to think properly this morning? Please help me to speak clearly and help all of us to believe the, what Jesus is teaching us in this text with, um, with, a, with a grace-engendered faith. Because our only hope, which will make this needed moment matter, it rests entirely on you. And therefore, Father, we... We look to you and you alone for everything. Hear our prayer, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let me begin with a question. It's fairly simple. Here it is. What does it look like when a person gives everything to the wrong thing? Okay. What does it look like in a person's life when they give everything, complete devotion, uh, total allegiance to, to the wrong thing? And the question is purposeful because it's tied to all of chapter 12. And the answer, at least in the context of chapter 12, it may surprise you. Because that question is actually rooted in another question, which comes out of verse 17. If you see that in your Bible, when Jesus, having asked, been asked the tax question, responds at the end, give to God what is God's. Okay, Jesus, please explain to us what is actually God's. He tells us, in part, chapter 12, verse 28, look down if you have your Bible, you see it there? Everything is God's. More specifically, everything we have and everything we are belongs to God because Jesus says it like this, love the Lord your God, and remember, love is a verb, it's not a noun, it's cool to hear, but it's better to see, love the Lord your God with your total personhood, that's what it says there, right? All of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, all of you, all the time which means God is due what his name implies. Everything. Total allegiance all the time in our whole life. And as you move along in chapter 12, so it's good for your Bibles to be open this morning, we see this love for God, which is so radical. We see it there in verse 42 of chapter 12. It's actually in a poor widow 
who, by the way, would be understood at that time because this was, this was their line of thinking that, boy, she must have done something really, really bad because bad things only happen to bad people. So she's a widow and she's a poor widow at that, meaning they thought because of her predicament, no husband, no wealth, she must have done something totally terrible. But Jesus says, verse 44, you see it there, oh, she gave, she put in everything she had, all she had to live in, on. Everything, all. Now, that's love. In fact, if you think about it, she must have been quite a woman. Because I bet she, the way that she was loving God, I bet it was the way she loved her husband and, and perhaps her family. But that's when a, look, what it looks like, in part, when a person gives everything to the real thing, namely God. But our question was what? What does it look like when a person gives everything to the wrong thing? So this becomes a question of idols. Christians are told that we are not to have any idols. And by the way, an idol is something other than Jesus as a requirement for our sense of security, joy, purpose, and fulfillment. And one of the ways we see this is when something is taken away from us and we lose security, joy, purpose, and fulfillment, in that we can understand, oh, that's an idol. That's an idol because we were worshiping, giving allegiance to something other than God. It's taken, and there you have it. Okay, so what does it look like when a person, person in a person's life when they give everything to the wrong thing? Okay, I'm going to answer that, but let me add another little wrinkle to it. <laughs> what if the person is deeply religious? Because, you see, that's what we have here But it isn't a religious person. It's actually a group of religious people, leaders in God's temple, and they have given everything to the wrong thing. So what does it look like? Well, they hate Jesus. They hate his gospel. And they seek to put an end to his good news campaign, which is the campaign of the very God that they say they serve. And they're all in then in the wrong thing. Therefore, it's a very toxic situation It's all coming to a head. Chapter 11, verse 28. Remember, who gave you this authority, Jesus? By what authority are you doing all these things? And part of the response of Jesus is to let them know that he knows who he is and he knows who they are. That was the parable of the tenants last week, remember? And it says there, verse 7 and 8, the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. We'll have everything. So get rid of God's son and we'll have it all. And then verse 8, so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. That's a precursor to the cross. Jesus is like, I know who I am. I'm God's son. And I know who you are. You're the tenants who will kill me. Verse 12, their response, they look for a way to arrest him. So that's what it looks like when a person gives everything to the wrong thing. You hate Jesus. They will not advance his gospel and they, and they seek to put an end to everything. Now, now listen, why do they want to do that? Okay, why? Now, this is important. Okay, they, why do they want to do that? So they can go back to their wild living and, and, and wine flowing, you know, and hot women, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? No, not at least publicly. And I'm not trying to be silly in that because this is what makes it all so sinister. They want to do that so they can go back to the temple and worship God that the, the way they want. They can live a religious life the way they define. And they hold their positions of authority doing the things which they've always done. And in that little 
seen. Nobody's rescued from the wrath of God on sin. They're not living for God. They're not loving God. And they're not advancing his name. And loved ones, all of that is at the heart of idolatry, and it's coming from religious people. I mean, I was thinking this morning, just think, if if you were like new to the Bible, and you began reading in Matthew, and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would be like, holy cow, the bad people in the story are actually the religious people. They're the bad people in the story. What's that all about? Well, what that is all about in part is they love something other than God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind and with all their strength. And you see, their idol at its root, it might have many names, but its true name is themselves. How do I know that? Matthew chapter 27, verse 17, Pilate knew it was out of self-interest that they, the religious leaders, that they handed Jesus over to them. I mean, is that it? Is that it? Just simply out of greed, out of envy, out of self-interest? That's the problem? Oh, yeah, it's a problem because I know that biblically and historically and personally, envy and jealousy has and could ruin me. So on a human level, you know, get rid of Jesus because we're jealous of him. It's better for us if he's dead. So we're not going to try to work with this guy and see if we can come to some conclusions about something about God. No, we're just going to get him out of the way. He needs to die. And then that is at the heart of that question and answer time. That's the, the fuel of that question and answer time. Verse 13b, if your Bible's open, they, again, religious leaders, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him with his words. Literally, that reads, to compile a list of grievances. <laughs> so isn't that what kids do to each other when, when they're mad at each other and they compile a list of grievances and they give it to mom or dad, whoever holds the power in the home? There it is. They're so bad. Here's the list. Get them. That's what they were doing. Off we go. Three points. First point is hypocrisy. And you'll see if your Bible's open that their hypocrisy finds its roots with their attempted flattery of Jesus. Why do they want to flatter Jesus? They have one aim, get rid of Jesus. They're going to use two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They're going to give them one question on taxes which in their mind has only two outcomes. Now, you see, up till then, the two groups, the the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hated each other. The Herodians supported the Roman occupation of Jerusalem and so Israel, and the Pharisees did not. Before Jesus, they had been enemies. After, their hatred of Jesus was the one thing which brought them together. Now, as you think about that, that would be something like the NAACP and some white supremacy group forming an allegiance to get rid of all Mexican-Americans. I mean, that is unthinkable. That's what we have here. And now there are some 72 hours from reaching their goal. And remember, way back in chapter 3, verse 6, the first year of the ministry of Jesus, they started this whole thing, chapter 3, verse 6, let's figure out a way to kill Jesus. One group was motivated by politics, the other group motivated by self-interest. So, verse 14, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You're not swayed by men. You teach the ways of God. There you go. That's the soft soap, right? (laughs) That's the flattery. (laughs) I got to tell you this. 
I had a really strange week in light of all these things that we're, I were studying. So in the middle of my study, somebody called and they, they were giving me all these compliments about the monthly letter that was sent out. And I was like, okay, like, I'm not going to fall for this. I was like, I'm reading my Bible. I ain't no flattery. And I felt so sorry for the person. I was like, well, thank you. Well, thank you. And I was waiting for the boom, you know, for the butt, and then give me the line of something terrible I did. But they were so nice, and they didn't say anything. And I said, well, thank you. But you see, flattery, remember, flattery is like perfume. You can sniff it, but don't drink it. Jesus won't drink it. They say the best of things with the worst of motives. Then comes the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And the tax that they were speaking of was a tax which was instituted by the Roman emperor Tiberius around A.D. 14. And the issue of tax, it wasn't so much of inconvenience. The tax that they were to pay held deep theological implications for God's people. And this is what I mean. They and the land were owned and ruled by God. But the tax that they paid to the Roman Empire was a symbol that they were Caesar's subject. And they were under Caesar's authority, meaning God's rule had been taken by these Gentile Romans. And they, so it was thought, said the Romans were their enemies and the enemies of God and so the enemies of his people. And by paying this tax to Caesar, it called to question their devotion to God. So people struggled with this. So these leaders now know that by asking this question that they were trying to trap Jesus with this kind of hotly contentious, deeply debated national issue. And the hypocrisy is the posing of this question is if they genuinely wanted an answer. And Jesus knows that they do not. So here's the dilemma that they thought they were going to put Jesus in. If Jesus says, yes, pay this poll tax to Caesar, he will lose the popularity that he has with the crowds. Remember chapter 12, verse 12? Remember the crowds were the one thing that was keeping Jesus alive, right? And they understood that because these leaders were afraid of the crowds. And now if Jesus says, pay the tax to Caesar, he would lose his popularity. Also, also he would risk breaking the first commandment because on the coin that Jesus will ask in a moment or two, the coin that was used to pay the poll tax, it had the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of God, Augustus. So that little phrase, son of God, that would be considered an adulterous statement. So again, if his answer is yes, the crowds turn on him. And if he answers no, okay, yeah, the crowds are pumped, but the Herodians, remember, they like the Romans, They now have grounds to go to the Roman authorities, say Jesus is propagating rebellion, telling of his no-tax plan, and they could have him arrested for treason to the empire. Either way, the religious leaders think that Jesus is going to condemn himself. So kind of have this picture in your mind, this massive press conference, you know, cameras clicking and, and crowds waiting with bated breath. Is it right to pay Taxes to Caesar, yes or no? Whose side is Jesus going to choose? Yes, makes Jesus a national traitor. No, makes Jesus an enemy of the state. And remember, the leaders couldn't give a rip about his answer. They just want Jesus out of the way. That's the first point, hypocrisy. And, and personally to me, the, the initial um, reply that Jesus gives in, in response to their question, is deeply profound. Verse 15, 
Okay, he knows their hypocrisy, right? They, he knows they're trying to mask this devilish plan, right? They're soaking him with flattery, and then they're going to give that unanswerable question to him. And they know, at least we know, that all through the gospel, they keep hounding Jesus. They always try to corner Jesus to catch him out. But what Jesus does here, and this is what I think is so profound, he forces them back to validate their own motives by asking them, why are you putting me to the test? Right? In other words, it's almost like Jesus is saying, what have I done that you want me gone, dead? What's so bad about me? I mean, is it the miracles? Is it, is it helping and healing people? Is it telling the truth about God and his plan to save the world? You have a problem with God wanting to save the world? The God that you say you serve? Why are you doing this? So he puts it right back on their lap. Their conscience is confronted here. That's number one, hypocrisy. Second point, number two, theology, because theology is exactly what Jesus gives them. And I think it's a mix of natural revelation and specific revelation. So natural revelation, some things they know by nature, specific revelation, some things they need to know from the tongue of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, bring me a denarius. Denarius was a coin about the equivalent of a day's wage, and it was used to pay the poll tax. And you see it there if your Bible's open. In less than 15 words, about a third of a tweet, Jesus sends them back to their heels, right? He exposes the truth about his enemies, and he crushes every effort that they try to um, attempt here to trap him. So they, they came with an either-or question. Jesus replies with a both-and question. Answer, excuse me. Bring me a denarius, verse 16. Who's on the cover? Whose inscription? Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. Have a look down, verse 17. Here's his answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In effect, what Jesus did, he reduced their question to a different one. Instead of answering, is it lawful to pay a tax? He asked, whom does the coin belong to? Right? Now, the reason why he does that is because the scribes and the chief priests, they knew their Torah and they knew their Talmud. The Talmud was a, was a commentary on the Torah. And this is what it said. He who issues the coin is the true ruler. So the Romans issued the coin, and in return they built roads, kept peace, built infrastructure, and so on. And you didn't have to improve, approve of the government to pay taxes. The taxes were handed over to the government to do what governments were designed to do. He who issues the coin rules the country. So the coin belongs to Caesar. He issued it. His image is on it. And he can call for a tax. Jesus is saying, pay what you should. However, Jesus does not stop there. So, so before the leaders have an opportunity to run into the street, he said yes, he said yes. Jesus immediately follows up with give to God what is God's, meaning whose image is stamped on humans. Right? A coin, Caesar, on us, who? Well, every good Jew knew that they were made in the image of God. That's what the scripture teaches. Therefore, God's image is stamped on human beings. So just as the coin belongs to Caesar, the person belongs to God. Now, in Jesus saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar, the Christian knows that's exactly what Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 teaches. 
Listen to some of Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that at which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, this is verse 6 of Romans 13. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, taxes. Revenue, revenue. Respect, respect, and so on. So yes, we we must pay our taxes. But more importantly, when we pay our taxes properly, it is an act of obedience to God. It's actually an act of worship to God. And we dishonor God when we dishonor the government, so what we can't do is we can't compartmentalize our worship of God because God has instituted these authorities and we're all called to submit to them and we are to give our loyalty and our fidelity to them and part of our loyalty and part of our fidelity is to pay our taxes proper because when we do that, it's actually an act of worship to God. So the Bible says that unless we actually obey the authorities, what God, which God has established, we, can, we can't actually worship God. We dishonor God if we dishonor our government. So I want you to know this. It is a spiritual issue when we pay our taxes. Here in America, we have the right to vote in the people that we would like to be in, and they can determine those things as it moves along. But at the end of the day, it is a spiritual issue when we pay our taxes. So even if the authority is an occupying force like the Roman Empire was, even if it was godless and corrupt like the Roman Empire was, whether just or unjust, we are obligated to obey the Bible, submit to them right up to the point where our allegiance to God would be compromised. And I'm not going to try to settle that issue today, but this is what I know, that that line is sometimes confusing But when you read your Bible, it is striking, at least to me, how many examples of God's people who work and serve and live under a complete anti-God, anti-Christian state. Think of Joseph, the prime minister in Egypt, a pagan nation. Think of Daniel, who was taught in Babylonian schools. He served in three cabinets, each one of those cabinets, the most anti-God cabinets which ever existed. And it's only when what? When he's called to bow down and worship the idol image of Nebuchadnezzar that he disobeys his government. In other words, right up to that point, he submits to the governing authorities and he does a wonderful job of serving them faithfully. And then read your New Testament, Paul's letters, all those Christians who served served Caesar. Christians who served Caesar. This is the point that Jesus is trying to make. The image of Caesar on the coin means that that coin belongs to Caesar. If you like, it has Caesar's sovereignty stamped on it. The coin has Caesar's image stamped on it. Therefore, when they paid their tax with that coin, they are simply giving back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and they are obligated before God to do that. However, I don't want to lose you here. The second part of Jesus' answer is the sting in the tail. Because the question is, okay, if Caesar owns the coin, who owns Caesar? 
Who owns the man who owns the money? Who owns the spies sent to trap Jesus? Who owns all people everywhere? God. And you see, that is what Jesus is implying here. Whose image, whose inscription do people bear? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Men and women are made in the image of God. So God stamps his likeness on us as he makes us, which means we are indebted to him. He rules us. And the word give, you see there in verse 17, give to, give to, it literally means fulfill an obligation. Fulfill an obligation. So Jesus has given us life, and we are to, we are obligated to give ourselves back to him. How much? Chapter 12, verse 28, remember? All of us. I couldn't help but think of that Willie Nelson song, All of Me. I think he sings it. Why not take all of me? All of me. We are to give God his due. What is God's due? All of me. So the question is, and I hope you're asking that question, well, why don't we? Why don't we? Bits and pieces, sure, but all? All the time? Well, here's the reason. The Bible tells us that the human heart is an idle factory. Listen to C.S. Lewis. Adam and Eve, as we say, wanted to call their own shots, call their bodies and souls their own. But that meant to live a lie. For our souls and our bodies are not our own. By nature, we want some corner of the universe of which we can say to God, this is our business, not yours. You can bless it, but you can't rule over it. That's us and our sin. Jesus is making it so clear that the kingdom of God has priority over every other kingdom, every other agenda, every other plan that we might have. He has authority over people that we love, our husbands, our wives, our kids, our friends. Everything else is a distant second place when we become followers of Jesus. So again, we ask ourselves, what do we owe God? Answer everything, our lives, our love, our hearts, our devotion, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now listen, it needs to be said that this is not some kind of a call to an oppressive and, and restricted way of life. Okay, Rather, it is a call to live the way we were created to live. You see, when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ and you see someone who loved God perfectly, that's what it means to be human this side of heaven. Jesus Christ was the supreme human being. His life was then lived for God and it was lived for others. That's what it means to be human, uh, for God and for others. He is the highest picture of what it means to be human, right? Right? So we know this. So, so the ultimate peak of humanness is, you know, like I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I turn 45 so that I can do for me the remaining years. It's not I'm going to fulfill every one of my desires and every one of my own personal callings and I'm going to call the shots and try to arrange life so that everything is me first. That's actually subhuman. That's dehumanizing. To live for ourselves first or for something or someone else first rather than to live for God, as promising as it sounds, is actually subhuman. It's dehumanizing. 
which will lead to dissatisfaction and will lead to ruin, right? What will happen, and I promise you this, I want you to think of Solomon, and if you don't know about Solomon, ask me after service. I'll tell you a whole lot about Solomon. Solomon lost his taste for life, and he began to dread life, and even though he had all the toys and all the girls and all the intellect and all the money and all the hobbies, Solomon leaves this world with a dull pain in his soul. He's duped. And he's like, what's the use of living? That's what that will do with you. And by golly, if some of us are honest enough, we would say, you know what? That's me sometimes. The dullness. I wish it would all just get over with quick. And I want you to know that all of that leads to anti-gospel behavior. Okay, what do you mean? Well, let me tell you what I mean. Materialism, anti-gospel behavior. But let me say this, moralism, or just flat morality, wanting to be good just for goodness sakes, that is also dehumanizing. Now, why do I say that? It's, it's subhuman because you see it in the religious leaders. One of the most dehumanizing things that we could do to ourselves and do to others is one, say nothing of Jesus to them, and two, when it comes to each other, Don't apply gospel truth to each other. That is subhuman. That dehumanizes us. And if our obedience to God doesn't flow from a heart which freely offers love as a response to God's grace given in Jesus, then all our good deeds are ultimately subtle forms of self-righteousness. You know, we're doing it to feel better, to to feel better, uh, to look better, and to say, I am better. That is anti-gospel behavior. However, it is a wonderfully liberating experience when the desire to please God overtakes the desire to please ourselves and when love for others displaces love for self. Knowing all along, now I want you to listen carefully, knowing all along that we cannot And we do not secure God's love and his forgiveness and his favor by loving him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Because that's not the gospel. Chapter 12, verse 34, it's almost there, but that's not the gospel. Again, we do not need to secure God's favor by our obedience because Jesus' obedience is what God accepts. Jesus' obedience has taken care of that. But, and listen, this is what makes the gospel so profound. Because we have been changed, what happens is God begins to animate our service. And he purifies our service. Now it's about love. It's not about favor or trying to secure something which Jesus has already given us. Now it's about love. It's a proper response to amazing love. We are lovingly indebted to God, and we love it. You understand that? We are lovingly indebted to God, and we love it. Isn't that a healthy marriage? Isn't it? When the baseline of the marriage is, I'm with you, and I'm never going to leave you. But I'm human, and I'm going to mess up. So your love for me can't be always the basis of my good or my bad. It's got to be baseline. We made promises publicly to each other. We said things forever. And now we move along happily. Babe, I'm sorry that I did this. But I thank you that that doesn't fracture the love. 
Honey, I'm sorry that I did this, but I thank you that that doesn't fracture the love. You're not going to leave me because I failed you. That's freedom. True freedom is not freedom from responsibility in order to live for myself, but freedom from myself in order to live for God and to live for others in his name. That's maturity. That's Christianity. I rest in Christ's sufficiency. I'm not so worried about my deficiency, so I glory in the cross, and I put no confidence in the fact that I can love God with all my heart and with all my soul and all my strength and my might as I should. Now, if you think about it, and we're going to get to the next point here, if you really think about it, the fact that these religious leaders did not follow up with, okay, uh, Jesus, help us about this tax issue. Give us some clarity there. The fact is because they don't care about the answer. They simply are jealous of Jesus. There's no you know, national concern. Let's make Israel great again. No, they're doing fine in the Roman occupation. They just want to hurt Jesus. They just want to kill Jesus. So they thought they'd create some circumstance so they can get rid of Jesus. You see, what they should have said when Jesus said that, they should have said, oh, Jesus, please help us. We haven't kept the first commandment. We haven't given God what is God's, and we don't see how we can. And we need some good news that you've been teaching. Can you give us some news? And you know what Jesus would do? He would do exactly what my daughter would do when I would come home from work, and and I would be like, and she would say, bring it in, Dad. Bring it in. That's what Jesus would do if they could just say that. Final point, certainty. So we began asking the question, what does it look like when a person gives everything to the wrong thing? You have it in these religious leaders. And let's end by asking the question there, why, verse 17, why are they so amazed? They're not converted. They're just thunderstruck. They're taken back on their heels. Why are they that way? I want you to think with me. It's because they were caught out. They saw what they actually were before God. They knew they were made in his image, stamped with his inscription, but they bear no resemblance to their maker nor his son. Their devotion is pretend. So they are stunned. They're taken back because they are not what they thought they were. They are stunned, taken back, because Jesus is more than they thought he was. And being in that predicament, they ask for no help. So the good news is right in front of them. He sets them back. They can feel it. It maybe hurts, but they do nothing. You know what they're discovering? This is Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Have you made that discovery? Have you made that discovery? You see, it's so easy in a sermon like this, right? Because you've probably thought that's where I was going. What's the matter with you? You know, you're not loving God with all your things. So take more of your time and throw it in there. You know, straighten up. And then next week, straighten up even more, you rascals. Is that the gospel? (laughs) And remember, Mark is teaching us the what? The gospel. So we need some certainty. What does God require of me? And since Jesus is God's son, and since our attitude towards God God is expressed in our attitude to Jesus. The question is, what does Jesus require of me? Well, in one sense, we owe him everything. 
So we have to be honest. I know I am made in your image. I know all is yours. And I know that I don't love you the way that you require. I don't love you with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. I know that. Not all the time. So what does God require in honesty which makes us cry out for mercy? And mercy which leads to repentance. Daily repentance. Because what God rightly requires, we cannot give God apart from Jesus Christ. So the salvation that Jesus offers is giving this free gift to undeserving sinners who have nothing to offer God. They understand that, and that is the wonder and the beauty of the Christian message. That's the heart of the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone and not by loving God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And then, now listen carefully, out of that, because we've been transformed, comes lives, if you would, that are animated. They're animated because they're dipped in God's love and a gospel life, which is really human. So in one sense, God requires nothing. Salvation is free. In another sense, God requires everything. And for those who have been changed by God's grace, everything seems so very, very reasonable. Very, very reasonable. And so we set our compass into the direction that Jesus points to. I know you know this, but one of my favorite songs of all time is I Praise You for Your Faithfulness. This is my favorite chorus in the song. For though you know all my ways, yet your love for me endures. When I think about all these things, it makes me love you more. Makes me love you more. Are you resting on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone? Are you resting in his finished work on the cross? Are you serving and loving God uh, with that as your fuel? Do you pay your taxes? As an act of worship to God? And when we sin, and when we don't pay rightly, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes as well it should, what do you do? Do you run to Christ? You make empty promises, do some dead works, apply some superstitious remedy to fix it. Do you do that? My sister sent me a text when she was in the doctor's office getting her blood work. She said, Joe, pray for me. You're, you're like you are, you are getting your blood drawn. I knew she made a mistake. I was like, Andrea, they're coming to take my blood? How are they going to do that? And then I put the family code. You don't know this, but we know this. The family code was, oh, Jesus, I'll be good. The reason why we say that is because it was a family joke. When something difficult would happen, we would always turn to each other. Instead of running to the gospel, we'd go, oh, Jesus, I'll be good. I'll be good. You know that, right? I'll be good. I promise I'll be good. That's cute. We should be good. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. You see, God in Christ has been good for us so that we are made good by him. Therefore, we rest in his goodness for our righteousness, knowing, knowing what? That our only hope in life and death is that we're not our own, but we belong body, soul, both in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He, by his spirit, assures me of eternal life, and he makes me heartily willing and ready to live for him. Okay, what does that look like? 
everything I am, all I have, all of me, mind, body, soul, strength, is his. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. We need to stop. Let's pray. Father, the gospel is so beautiful. It is so profound. It it exposes the worst of us. And yet it reveals the best of you in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that day by day we we would tackle the issues of our life with the gospel before us. We wouldn't play games with um, trying to earn our, your favor and your love by doing more or giving more. That would not do. But we would be mindful and repentant when we miss the mark. Glory in the cross. Put no confidence in the flesh. And then live with that fuel as a fire in our bones for our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us to that end for the glory of your name. Help us to be human. Help us to be like Christ. Amen.